He was a letter winner on his high school football team. Not all state, not all conference, a letter winner. His senior year, his team won two games. Maybe, he doesn't quite remember for sure. And after his senior season, he spent the year stacking magazine shelves at an airport before going to junior college. His senior season, he rolled into Iowa City. He was maybe 5'11", maybe 180 pounds or so. By all appearances, he was an ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill quarterback. And on that mid-September day in 2002, he went into halftime with his team trailing 24-7, and he looked very ordinary. His team was dead in the water. So was its four-game win streak against their arch rival. And head coach Dan McCarney was irate. He let everyone have it. And he challenged the team, hey, if we're going down, we're going down swinging. Seneca Wallace took his coach's words and that challenge personally. And he came out swinging and slinging. Opening drive of the second half, he goes 75 yards in nine plays, carries it in the last five yards himself right there for a score. Seven plays later, after a Brad Banks fumble, he throws a seven-yard touchdown pass. Two plays later, after another fumble, a 19-yard strike, Iowa State scores 23 points in six and a half minutes to take the lead, and they would never look back. By the time it was all said and done, Seneca Wallace had thrown for 361 yards. He put up 36 points, most ever at the time, against Iowa for an Iowa State team. He'd made clutch play after clutch play. Seneca Wallace had an extraordinary performance, completing the third largest comeback in school history. Seneca Wallace took his coach's words to heart, and he understood his role He used his position and his resources. He seized the moment. And he went from ordinary to extraordinary. In fact, he became the front runner for the Heisman Trophy. When it was all said and done, Seneca Wallace had bailed out Cyclone Nation and very much ruined my day. We need some football. I'll tell you that right now. We're in a summer series called Extraordinary, and we're looking at the lives of people in the Bible, just ordinary people that God used in extraordinary ways. And this morning, we are looking at the Seneca Wallace of Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire in 470 B.C. Her name was Esther. She was a young Jewish woman raised in exile by her cousin Mordecai after her parents had died. And through this relationship and through some some seemingly random coincidental events in her life, Esther is challenged to discover and fulfill her purpose and use her position and resources to seize the moment and to save a nation of people otherwise left for dead. Here's the interesting thing. The book of Esther never once mentions the name of God, and yet his fingerprints are all over this story. And the author does this intentionally, leaves God out intentionally, because he wants us to look for God's presence and activity, not only in this story, but in our own lives, in the very ordinary relationships, in ordinary events, as well as extraordinary random things that happen in our lives. Because the author wants us to see that just like Esther, God invites us ordinary people to extraordinary positions for extraordinary 
purposes. And we find out in chapter 1 what it looks like when someone has an extraordinary position, but no extraordinary purpose. Xerxes is the king of the Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires in history. He's ruling over 127 provinces that stretch from Egypt all the way to India. And at a time when he should be focused on expanding prosperity for everybody or protecting the most vulnerable or securing justice for all, he's throwing parties for himself, indulging his own pleasure. In fact, it's like six months of a party in it, and he caps it with this week-long bender, encouraging everybody to drink as much as they can. It makes the parties of Wolf of Wall Street or Project X look tame. And so he's, he's getting drunk himself, and, and he starts showing off a little bit. He gets this brilliant idea. He says, I know. I've got the most beautiful wife in the world. I should show her off. And so he sends a servant to get her, and he says, hey, Queen Vashti, the king wants you to come to this party wearing nothing but your royal crown. The king isn't just asking Queen Vashti to, to make a simple appearance. And the queen actually refuses this demeaning request, and this enrages the king. And so he asks his legal experts, what should I do about this? These experts in the law. What kind of king doesn't know the laws in his own land? What kind of king abdicates his own responsibility in his own household to another man? Queen Vashti ends up being deposed. She's, she's removed She's never to enter the king's presence again. And then his legal experts go a step further because they're worried about what's going to happen in their own homes. And so they make a law that says every woman in every province throughout the Persian Empire must respect and submit to their husbands. And you need to know that as this first chapter ends, the author is mocking this king and his decisions. Mocking this king who has a royal position but no royal purpose. And now he has no royal wife. And you need to know that you have a royal purpose. And it's not about you. This is what the author is trying to remind us, is that we have a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. And when we forget that, we're prone to making bad decisions just like this king, and our lives start to shrink, and, and those around us, their lives start to suffer. Now, unfortunately, I don't know about you, but my natural default is to make life more about me and to forget that I have this purpose that's beyond me, this God-given purpose for my life. I can easily make it all about, you know, my privileges or, or, or my beliefs and my opinions, my comfort and significance. It's a dead giveaway to me when, when um, I, uh, maybe somebody makes a decision or somebody has a response or, or an opinion that I disagree with and, and I start to take it personally and it hurts way more than it should hurt. And so then I start to maybe have some thoughts about what kind of people think this way or act this way and I start having judgment in my heart towards this person. Or I just say, forget it. And I go and I binge on an hour or hours of of Netflix and grab the ice cream and just don't care about what anyone around me needs or wants and just life just caves in on me. When we fail to realize or remember that God has given us a purpose that goes beyond ourselves, it's so easy to become like King Xerxes and seek our own pleasures 
and get upset when things don't go our way and make really bad decisions or abdicate responsibility for making any decisions at all. Regardless of our position, we all have a royal purpose. And we need this purpose. It's what brings us life. That is what brought Seneca Wallace to life in the second half of that game against Iowa. He was reminded that his purpose was bigger than himself. It wasn't about winning or losing that game. As McCarney said, win or lose, we are going down swinging. It was all about playing for the pride of Cyclone Nation. He had a purpose bigger than himself. And so do we. Back in our story, King Xerxes needs a new queen. And so he sends out all of his servants. He comes up with this brilliant idea and he says, I want you to round up all of the beautiful virgins from every province and bring them. And they're to receive beauty treatments for an entire year. And then they they go through this year of beauty treatments before they can go on a date with the king. And the king has a date. He's going to date every one of them. And then at the end of this, he's going to choose his favorite. He's going to offer a rose. And he's going to ask her to marry him. They're going to live happily ever after. This being a great reality TV show, Bachelor King Xerxes. Actually, again, the author is ridiculing this king and his oppressive methods because this is a lot more like the movie Taken, where these women are being sex trafficked. Because you see, the losers in this contest, they'll never go home again. They'll never see their families, they'll never have a family of their own, but they will now become the personal sex slave of the king and his harem and the queen. She gets it a little bit better because she gets to rule over this harem of losers. Once again, the author mocks the king. Long story short, one of those who is selected to enter this contest is the beautiful Esther. And as she's being taken to to the castle, her cousin Mordecai uh, warns her, do not let anybody know that you are Jewish, and so she hides her identity, and she quickly wins favor with the king's servant who makes sure that she gets all of her beauty treatments and all the food she needs, and she's finally ready to go before the king, and the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of them, so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Unbelievably. A young Jewish orphan living in exile becomes the queen of the entire Persian Empire. And get this, while all this is happening, Mordecai keeps checking in with Esther. And one day he's outside the king's gates and he overhears two officers of the king making a plan to kill the king. And Mordecai uses this to his advantage. He goes and tells Esther, who goes and tells the king and gives Mordecai full credit, and they save the king's lives. A reminder, God is not mentioned in this story at all, and yet these two outsiders from his family have somehow gotten into the inner circle of this king, and they've won the favor of the king of the Persian Empire. Again, God calls two ordinary people to ordinary to extraordinary positions for extraordinary purposes. God is always present, always at work. He's doing this kind of thing always, putting ordinary people in extraordinary positions for extraordinary purposes. Are you looking for God's presence in both the ordinary relationships and experiences as well as the extraordinary events that happen in your life? 
Of course, there's always, you know, there's always forces working against God's purposes. And now we meet Haman. He is the king's chief of staff. And his family and Mordecai's have some history. There's a lot of bad blood going way back between these two. They're like the Hatfields and the McCoys wanting to destroy each other. And so when Mordecai refuses to kneel down to this chief of staff and give him honor, Haman decides he's going to end this, this feud once and for all. And he's not going to just kill Mordecai, but he says this. Instead, he looks for a way. To destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman goes and he tells the king, hey, there's this group of people living in your kingdom. And they disobey all of your rules and they have their own traditions and customs that aren't anything like yours. And you you should not tolerate them being here anymore. And he pays the king 10,000 talents of silver for the right to be able to go and carry out genocide against this group of people. The king doesn't ask any questions. He says, sure. And he signs this plan into law and a date is set when every Jewish man, woman, and child will be killed on the same day. And signs are posted throughout every province in the empire. And the king and Haman sit down for a drink. And the rest of the empire is bewildered. And when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews. Make no mistake, this was a public protest. If Mordecai had simply wanted to grieve or mourn, He could have put on sackcloth and ashes and stayed at home. But he wants everyone to know about this wicked injustice, especially the king. And so, at great risk to himself, he marches right up to the king's gate, wailing loudly and bitterly. And you you can bet he would have gone even further, except there was a rule that stopped people from going beyond the gate if they were wearing sackcloth. Mordecai joins this collective suffering, these very public protests of the Jewish people in every province. Can you imagine such a scene today? When Esther's attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. And she sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Esther's first move, she's distressed, she's worried, she wants him to cover up, stop making such a scene. Maybe she was trying to protect him. Maybe she'd become completely sheltered in her new life of privilege. Or maybe she was suffering from PTSD and just couldn't face reality. The story doesn't explain why, but it's clear that Esther doesn't know what's going on. She actually sends her attendants to ask Mordecai, what's troubling you? And Mordecai tells her about Haman's plan and says, Esther, you're the only one who can save our people. We need you to take a stand. We need you to go to the king and beg for mercy, get him to change this law. And Esther says to Mordecai, do you realize what it is you're asking me to do? It's all the kings and officials 
And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. And then she adds, by the way, it's been 30 days since the king has invited me to his quarters. If I go and see the king, I'm as good as dead. Like Dan McCarney, halftime of that Iowa State game, Mordecai can't believe what he's seeing and what he's hearing from this woman that he's raised as his own daughter. And it says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Whoop, there it is. One of the most famous lines in the entire Old Testament. One of the best halftime speech, one of the best rallying cries of all time for such a time as this. Who knows? But you're in this position. But don't miss the rest of Mordecai's message to Esther. He says, listen, Esther, if you stay silent, God's going to find another way to save his people. But don't you expect to be saved because of your place of privilege in Xerxes' world. God hasn't made you a queen so that you can bury your head in the sand or so that you can save yourself. If you don't take action, you will surely die and your father's family with it. You are an ordinary Jewish woman from an ordinary Jewish family. But you have been placed in an extraordinary position at this extraordinary time for an extraordinary purpose. Let me ask you something. Who plays the role of Mordecai in your life? Who do you allow to kind of get up in your grill and confront you when you've lost sight of what's most important? Or who, who helps you see where God is and what God is up to and, and inspires you to join him in that work? We all need a Mordecai, someone who we allow to just speak bluntly, honestly to us when we're having trouble seeing a problem ourselves or seeing ourselves as the problem. Someone who can offer us another perspective when we may be angry about a situation, or maybe we don't know what to do, or we're too scared to do it. Will you allow me to be Mordecai with you for just a second and ask you what royal position has God placed you in? In other words, who are the people that you influence, that you care for, that you teach, that you coach, and what gifts has God given you? 
You know, we don't all have the beauty of Esther or the speed and athleticism of Seneca Wallace, but every one of us has been given unique strengths and gifts and talents and resources and passions, skills, and even wounds. Even our wounds are meant for God's purposes. What do the people around you need from you in this moment? At a time such as this, a time with so much uncertainty, so much loss and grief, we see, we've seen the riots, we've seen the division, we know about political division, we know about racism, all of these things. We know at a time when, when people need family celebrations and joy and laughter and fun, probably more than ever, how are you using your God-given gifts and resources to be part of God's plan for rescue and redemption and restoration of our world? How will you bless our broken world at a time such as this so that those around you can encounter and follow Jesus? Uh, I want so bad to tell you my story about my friend Robeson right now, and I don't have time, so I have to tell you that another time. But I just want to tell you, there's tons of examples of people doing this so well in our church right now. I was thinking about Craig Patterson earlier this week, who loves to cook, and he's been cooking around here for years, and he's going to do it again this Friday for our men's breakfast. And he doesn't cook just so that people can enjoy his great food, which is, which is what we do. But he, because he cooks because it brings people together. He knows it will bring people together to make connections and form friendships and that they're going to get fed spiritually and emotionally and socially as well, and it changes people's lives. I think about Mark and Laura Shipper up in Waverly. They have a sixth-grade son, and, 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 uh, and he has friends, and they, they spent all last year on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings talking about life with these sixth-graders and going through the book of Luke and, and by the end of the school year, as they're on Zoom the last few weeks, three of these students commit to following Jesus. I think about Mark Kuyper and Nancy Hoosman, who, who Brian just told us about earlier. Who, who They have this passion for prayer and healing, and so they pull the Grundy campus together for a time of prayer this last week. Prayer for our church and our church families and our nation. Out of their passion for prayer and healing. I know that a lot of parents right now are you're home with your kids still. <laughs> but I think about how you've become not only homeschool teachers, but event planners and hairstylists and therapists and all kinds of things. As ordinary as we are, we've been placed in extraordinary positions for extraordinary purposes at such a time as this. And there is no action no skill, no talent, no resource that's too ordinary for God to use. Back to Esther's story to finish up. Stay with me. This is, this is critical. Esther processes Mordecai's inspiring words. And she remembers that this life that she's living is not about her. It's so much bigger. She remembers who she is, that she's a member of God's family. And she accepts Mordecai's challenge. She says, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. She determines that there is no greater purpose, no greater love than to lay down her life for another. 
and you got to read this book because all kinds of strange things happen and it's hilarious and it's amazing to watch God work behind the scenes. But Esther finally goes to the king and he extends the gold scepter to her. And the king says to her, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And the king asks, who sold you? Who dared to make this plan? He's totally unaware of his own part in this. And with Haman standing right in front of her, Esther responds, this vile Haman did it. Dun, dun, dun. Esther risks everything. She reveals that she's Jewish And she confronts head-on the evil standing right in front of her. Esther pleads with the king, and don't miss what she says. She says, if my life really matters to you, help me. Give me my life. And not just my life, but please acknowledge that the lives of all Jewish people matter. And if all Jewish lives matter, please do something to stop us from being annihilated. Hundreds of years and pages later in the New Testament, Jesus' friend Peter writes to encourage the church. And he says, some people stumble because they they don't understand or they don't take God at his word. But you... You are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Hundreds of years later, Orchard Hill Church, followers of Jesus... God has bestowed on us, ordinary people, a royal position for such a time as this. Just like Jewish people in this story, black lives have been oppressed for centuries in our nation. And for such a time as this, the church is called to an extraordinary position for an extraordinary purpose to stand up and proclaim with God and with our brothers and sisters everywhere that oppressed lives matter. We are his chosen royal priests, his messengers. We can listen. We can learn. We can allow others to speak some truth into our lives to help us grow in our understanding, our compassion, and our unity with one another. I know a number of us are reading through the book Color of Compromise right now about church history and the history of racism, and I wonder if that's not something you might join us with 
as we learn more about history and about oppression of people in our society. Part of our purpose as we obey and follow Jesus is to stand together and to work for justice and freedom for all. Will you please pray with me? Father, help us to understand this time and day we're living in, both within very immediate ways, within our own families, within our circle of friends, within the jobs you've given us to do, but also in the larger context of what's going on in our world. Help us to understand that you have called us and invited us to this royal position for this royal purpose so that we can show others your goodness. But help us to know how to do that. Help us to know how to take steps to show others your goodness, to bless this broken world, and to help others encounter and follow Jesus. It's in your name we pray.